All right, we are back. We sometimes do obituaries on this program, and we have one from November 29th that uh, I think is just strangely an obituary for the times. The man who has passed is William Ruckelshaus. He's a bit of a footnote figure in American history for a couple of things. He's probably best known for the fact that he quit his job in the U.S. Justice Department rather than carry out Richard Nixon's order to fire the special prosecutor investigating the Watergate scandal. Rokosaus was a lifelong Republican. He also served as acting director of the FBI at one point. But his moment of fame was on October 20, 1973, when he was deputy attorney general and joined his boss, Attorney General Elliot Richardson, in resigning rather than carrying out Nixon's unlawful order to fire Watergate special prosecutor Archibald Cox. After Richardson and Ruckelshaus resigned, Solicitor General Robert Bork carried out the firing in what became known as the Saturday Night Massacre. This prompted protests and outrage around the country. God, remember when they used to have outrage over presidential misconduct? Well, fortunately, we still have some. Impeachment proceedings against Nixon began 10 days later. What I find most curious about William Ruckelshaus was that he served as the first administrator of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. A lifelong friend and Seattle philanthropist Martha Kongsgaard said he was incorruptible. It was very disappointing for him to see this happening again in our country and maybe on a larger scale. Deep decency in the face of corruption is needed now more than ever. Boy, that's a quote for the day. Deep decency in the face of corruption is needed now more than ever. When he was the first EPA administrator from 1970 to 1973, Ruckelshaus won praise for pushing automakers to tighten controls on air pollution. Shortly after taking over the agency, he ordered the mayors of Detroit, Atlanta, and Cleveland to stop polluting waters and took actions against U.S. Steel and dozens of other water polluters. Ruckelshaus spent much of his life focused on air and water pollution and other environmental issues. As a young Indiana State Attorney General, he sought court orders to prevent industries and cities from polluting waters. In later years, he was the Pacific Northwest's most high-profile advocate for cleaning up Puget Sound in Washington State. Back in 1983, Ronald Reagan asked him back to the EPA to help restore public trust after the prior administrator, Ann Gorsuch, by the way, mother of the current Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch, was held in contempt of Congress for refusing to turn over documents about her agency's lax efforts to clean up toxic waste. In the reporting, they said agencies allegedly lax efforts to clean up toxic waste, but I think the allegedly can be deleted from that sentence. Anyway, apparently several thousand EPA employees greeted his return with thunderous applause. One sign read, how do you spell relief? Ruckel's house. Yes, hard to imagine. Conservative, Republican, environmentalist. It was our privilege, Mr. Berlin and I, to, to travel out to interview Pete McCloskey a few years back. He was one of the authors of the Endangered Species Act. My good friend and former Radio Parallax guest, Dr. Roger Orman, uh, wrote me some days back to say he listened to Pete McCloskey on the show and said, boy, that was a good one. And I have to agree, it was. Doggone it, we should have him back, Mr. McMillan. Yes. Because decency in the face of corruption is needed now more than ever. 
All right, I think at this point I should jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for revelations after outgoing Energy Secretary Rick Perry announced on Fox News that President Trump is, quote, the chosen one, unquote, who has been, quote, sent by God to do great things, unquote. Before joining his administration, Perry, age 69, called Trump a cancer on conservatism. But I guess as energy secretary, he's been able to broker quite a few favorable deals for his friends, and he's probably looking forward to a, a real comfortable retirement, I imagine. During a Republican debate, I think it was back in uh, 2016 or so, Perry reiterated that he planned to abandon three of the departments in the federal government, but had a bit of a brain freeze and couldn't remember the third one that he was going to get rid of. Oh, it turned out to be the energy department, the one he later headed. Moving right along, it was a bad week last week for defenses after a Florida man told police that a plastic bag of crack cocaine sitting in his car's back seat must have gotten there by, quote, the wind, unquote, blowing it in through his open window. Well, maybe. And it was surely an ugly week last week for Deval Patrick, the former Massachusetts governor and newly declared presidential candidate who had to cancel a campaign rally at Georgia's Morehouse College after only two supporters showed up. Explained a rally organizer, the campaign's telling us that they had to catch a flight. And we're not sure whether it was a good week for not being greedy or a bad week for planning your exit, but the story is that down in Florida, Sandy Hawkins, age 73, allegedly told a teller, at a Boca Raton, Florida bank, that he had a weapon and he demanded $1,100. When the teller counted out $2,000, Hawkins, sporting a Make America Great Again t-shirt, said it was too much. He made her take back $900 and left. He was later arrested. And finally, from the Only America file, which we would probably refile under (laughs) symbol of our modern tech industry, We have this item. Prison inmates in West Virginia can now read more than 60,000 titles in ebook form, but they'll be charged five cents a minute to read the books. Prisoner advocate Katie Ryan said that instead of educating inmates who are paid as little as four cents per hour for prison work, the book program is about generating revenue for the state of West Virginia. And we have to admit, it sounds like it is. And in foreign news, the mess that we created in Iraq seems to still be a mess. The Prime Minister submitted his resignation last Saturday. At least 400 people have been killed in recent protests against the government. Demonstrators have been denouncing the corruption and joblessness in their war-ravaged yet oil-rich country. And things are bad down in Zimbabwe, at least in this case the U.S. can't be blamed for the woes of the country. Last week, a U.N. special expert on the right to food, said about Zimbabwe that it is on the brink of man-made starvation and the number of people needing help is shocking for a country that is not in conflict. Zimbabwe is being called one of the world's foremost food insecure states. 
The others, Yemen, South Sudan, and Somalia, have been ravaged by war. The problems in Zimbabwe relate to one thing and one thing alone, really, really bad governance. This really breaks my heart. It's a lovely country. Its people are lovely. Possibly the friendliest people I've ever met in any country I've visited. Yet they are suffering so under the ham-fisted mismanagement of their, well, the Marxist regime of Robert Mugabe and his successor. In Zimbabwe's urban areas, about 2.5 million people lack basic public services, including health and safe water. Electricity is cut by up to 19 hours a day in the country. We, we hope for better things for Zimbabwe. And we hope for better things here in America, which uh, I think we can expect the impeachment proceedings to go forward, at least the recommendation for same this week. The Republican members of, I guess it's the Judiciary Committee, put out a report saying that the president, in their view, had done nothing wrong. Of course, Devin Nunes, the ranking member of that committee, uh, may soon get, well, his proverbial tit in the ringer, to revive a colorful phrase from the Watergate days. As accusations are coming in from Lev Parnas, who is an indicted associate of Rudy Giuliani, a Ukrainian, he worked on the pressure campaign against Ukraine. Parnas claimed he learned that Devin Nunes set up meetings in Europe last year to discuss digging up dirt on former Vice President Joe Biden. Congressional records indicate Nunes took several aides on a four-day trip to Vienna, costing taxpayers $63,000. Parnas also claims he met personally with a Nunes aide at a Trump International Hotel to discuss efforts to damage Biden. Let's just get on with this impeachment thing, shall we? These are times when we really do need little items of good news. Well, here's one. Evidently, a woman named Diana Chong left her car running when she dashed into Bagels 101 in Middle Island, New York, to grab some snacks for a road trip to Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And I guess she has one of those cars that just has a fob. But if you don't turn your car off as you remove the fob from it, it can continue running, which is, I guess, what happened in this case, because she left the fob in the bagel shop. By this point, she evidently stopped her car, and she was now unable to restart it. She called locksmiths and dealerships, but they were all closed for the weekend. Eventually, she phoned Bagels 101, and manager Vinnie Procia said he'd drive the fob over himself. And he made the 180-mile journey in, I guess, six hours. Must have been round trip. Said Diana Chong, this act of kindness is just unheard of. And you know, we ought to give this guy a round of applause ourselves. All right, uh, some years back, many, many years back, in fact, I obtained a degree in biological sciences at the University of California at Davis, a place I'm very proud to still have a relationship with. Apparently, UCD still wants to have a relationship with me because they tracked me down and sent me a, a nice color, glossy magazine from the College of Biological Sciences, which is now, I guess, officially a college. Gotta say, man, things have changed over the decades. I'm looking at the the timeline of the College of Biological Sciences and to see when all of these different departments were founded and what they now call them, which is not what they called them back in my day. Apparently in 1922, the Department of Zoology got established, but it's now called Evolution and Ecology. And no, I don't see how you morph zoology into evolution and ecology, but they did. In 1924, the Department of Botany was established, but now, of course, they have to call it the Department of Plant Biology. In 1946, they founded the Department of Bacteriology. 
But now they have to call it microbiology and molecular genetics, not bacteriology. In 1950, they founded the Department of Genetics, but it's now called Molecular and Cellular Biology. In 1958, the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics was established, but they couldn't call it Biochemistry and Biophysics. No, now it's called the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology. In 1964, the Department of Animal Physiology was established, and now it's called Neurobiology, Physiology, and Behavior. In 1970, the Division of Biological Sciences formed between the College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences and the College of Letters and Sciences. In 2005, while I wasn't looking, the University of California Regents established the College of Biological Sciences. UCD has long been noted for its, uh, its, its excellent curriculum in matters related to biology, I guess all things related to biology. And so I guess we better try and prove that by pulling out five different tips on exercise that come out of this magazine from the College of Biological Sciences. The first point is that endurance is about evolution, which which may be true, but it's not going to be very helpful for you, the athlete. The second one may be, it notes that stretching doesn't prevent injury. In this, they quote Professor of Molecular Exercise and Physiology, Keith Barr, as noting that being overly flexible creates laxity in your joints, which requires you to use more muscle energy to stabilize them. He notes there's a really nice meta-analysis of lots and lots of different studies, and their conclusion was that stretching had no effect on musculoskeletal injury rates. The better way to maintain flexibility is to do strength training. And point three, for strength training, reps trump sets. According to Barr, a single set of 10 to 12 reps on each exercise is all you need to complete a strength training program in 12 to 15 minutes. Personally, this correspondent would suggest you exercise a heck of a lot more than that. Point four is spark up a runner's high. I kind of like this one. They note that research shows that the sensation described as runner's high can be attributed to the body's production of endocannabinoids, which deliver a chemical experience similar to cannabis. Now, when they say spark up a, a runner's high, they're not, they're not talking about a shortcut. No, you're not going to get this from a dispenser. You're going to get this one from exercising more. Although I, I have to admit, I've always sort of laughed at this idea of what the runner's high is supposed to be. Well, back when I was in medical school, they were attributing it to the endogenous opioids we all have inside of us, which explain why opioids work. They mimic natural compounds that we all rely upon. But I guess opioids are so out of favor now that we're not even going to contribute the runner's high to endogenous opioids anymore. No, we're going to attribute it instead to endogenous cannabinoids. I'm not an exercise physiologist. I don't know what the answer is here, but let's just say I've always had some skepticism about all this. My suspicion is a lot of things go into a runner's high and we're just guessing. And they may be good guesses, but I think they're guesses. They used to talk about endorphins, endorphins this, endorphins that. Endorphins are your body's own opioids. When they talk about how your reward system in your brain is related to that little hit of dopamine you get, again, it's just, you know, maybe that's why. I think these simplifications are just that, simplifications. Anyway, the fifth point is that science supports the mind-body connection, which I, I would just shortcut that to say, yes, if you exercise, your mental health will improve. 
In my decades as a practicing physician, uh, one statement I made to many, many hundreds of patients was that one of the few things in this world that's everything it's cracked up to be is exercise. Most of us don't get enough of it. If we go out and get more of it, we're better off. That seems like quite an oversimplification itself, doesn't it? But it doesn't have to be rocket science. I should mention, too, that although we're very proud of our affiliation with uh, Davis and the University of California, we are likewise pleased to be affiliated with KZFR up in Chico, California, and we hope to have a visit up there soon, perhaps uh, bringing together some people from uh, the station at KDVS to talk to some folks up there at KZFR. I think that'd be a nice, happy meeting of the minds, and we hope that comes off sometime soon. We've been very impressed over the years of the fine job that Rick Anderson and the crew up there at KZFR managed to do year in and year out. And if you're hearing us, courtesy of either of those two stations, I think you hopefully will remember them when it comes to pledge drive time. You too have a part to play in all of this, dear listener. Anyway, talking of biology, as we were just a moment ago, uh, I've been uh, intrigued by the book from Mark Kurlansky titled Milk, a 10,000-year-old food fracas. The word, and I have to pause at the word fracas to recall one of those summaries I saw years ago of actual transcriptions of court proceedings. According to the court transcript, the judge asked the witness, so you were then shot in the fracas? And the witness then responded, no, your honor, I was shot in the buttocks. Anyway, Kurlansky's a pretty good writer. His previous uh, best-selling books about salt and cod were quite good, and the one on milk, not bad either. He's somebody we need to get on this program. And have him talk about the news that's being bandied about that milk is experiencing a dramatic decline. Writing in the New York Times, David Yaffe Bellamy noted that this staple of American households is drying up. Dean Foods, the country's largest milk processor, filed for bankruptcy a couple weeks back following an 18% drop in U.S. milk consumption over the past decade and a decline of 47% since 1970. Today, weight-conscious Americans eat less cereal, get their calcium elsewhere, and whiten their coffee with trendy alternatives like oat, almond, and soy milk. Consumers also fear that bovine growth hormones and cholesterol in milk are a problem and that the environmental cost of industrial farming is, well, it's just, it's just too high. This is a subject we, we do need to talk about in a future installment of this program. The Washington Post noted in this matter, there's a valuable lesson lying in the middle of this about market forces. The U.S. government has fought desperately to prop up dairy production. Between 1995 and 2019, an estimated $6 billion went to protect producers from volatile prices. The main dairy safety net program cost taxpayers nearly $254 million last year. The U.S. Department of Agriculture and local governments boosted the iconic Got Milk ad campaign, making milk mustaches famous nationwide. God, I hated those ads. It's sort of cute when the toddler drinks his milk and has a milk mustache. It just doesn't look as good like on Steve Young. Anyway, we think there's a lot of skullduggery involved in milk production. The government for years has been propping up milk prices and in part doing so by creating blocks of cheese, which it then warehouses and occasionally trots out to feed people who, you know, need foodstuffs. We talked some years ago about the controversy surrounding recombinant bovine growth hormone, 
which uh, a lot of the large dairies were buying to increase their output by just a hair, which put smaller dairies that didn't want to do this uh, at a disadvantage. The government sided in favor of, uh, I guess it was Monsanto or whoever it was that was producing this, uh, this material. I think I've finally now seen some labels on milk that says it's BSH-free. But for a while, when companies tried to do that, they got sued by the big producers saying, you, you can't put that on the label. That implies that if, we use, if we're using the BSH, that it's bad. Well, in many ways, it is bad. It was developed at Cornell University. And according to Kurlansky's book, Cornell economists studying the impact of recombinant bovine growth hormone predicted that it would drive small farms out of business because of the type of herd management it requires. It is central to the Cornell philosophy that the larger herds are indicative of better managers. They even encouraged economic policies to help ease small farmers out of dairying, which would completely undo the rural culture and even the landscape of a number of states like New York and Vermont. The book quotes Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders as writing back in 2012, there's something very wrong when large processors reap large profits and family farmers can barely survive or must sell their farms. Boy, the corporatization of agriculture is something we need to talk about in future installments, not just milk, but the two sometimes coincide. And yes, we despair over the fact that talking about stuff isn't the same thing as doing things about stuff, but if people are unaware about it in the first place, how are you going to do anything? That's what, something that keeps us going. Although we're so often dismayed by talking about an item and pointing out that doing something is really a bad idea and then standing back and watching as it is done anyway because somebody makes a lot of money off of doing it that crazy way. We reported about a potential development in San Francisco Bay some weeks back, and I'm sad to quote from a letter to the editor by a man named Subaru Bot from Union City to the East Bay Times, who wrote to say that the Newark City Council recently approved 469 homes on the edge of wetlands, despite environmentalist concerns. The 430-acre site is a mix of wetlands and marshes and agricultural land. It is likely that the water level in this area will rise by the climate change impact in the future. One major side effect would be mosquito infestation. Wetlands and marshlands are favorite breeding grounds of mosquitoes. South Brookhaven, New York, is experiencing this problem. During the height of the mosquito season, many South Brookhaven communities are overwhelmed by mosquitoes. Residents cannot walk from their homes to their cars or sit in their backyards without being covered by mosquitoes. This real danger should be made known to the prospective buyers. Both the city and the builder shoulder this responsibility, to which we say, ha, that's not going to happen. We've remarked for years on the fact that uh, something I'm quite familiar with on a first-hand basis, the Hayward Earthquake Fault, it, uh, it runs about a quarter mile from where I, I grew up. We used to play in the Earthquake Fault because it created a large sink in the landscape. I mean, literally, we, we played baseball in the Earthquake Fault. As orchards have been replaced by, you know, condominiums and apartments in this same area, I just wonder if people have really been fully apprised of the fact that they are quite literally sitting on the edge of the fault. And to bring this matter to the attention of the public, Mr. Miller and I have been cooking up a prank for quite some time, which we're not quite ready to implement. Yes, well, this alleged prank, I guess would be the way to phrase it. Potential prank. Or as President Trump might say, I'm hearing about a potential prank. But anyway, the building goes on in the Bay Area. 
articles are now pointing out that uh, some people have changed. Well, they, they cite in the article, which from Nick Nico Savage in the San Jose Mercury, about how a couple thought that their problems in commuting would be eased by moving their work days to Saturday and Sunday, taking weekdays off, and found out, well, whoops, nope, traffic is bad on the weekends too. As we're now facing some of the worst traffic jams in the United States here in Northern California, especially the Bay Area and the Los Angeles Basin, you would think that at some point someone would stop and say, you know what, we're full. We do not have room to grow without making tremendous negative impacts on the people that already live here. But you're going to wait a long time for someone to come forward and say that. Instead, you're more likely to turn up your Sunday paper, as I'm doing right now, the Sunday business section, and seeing a glowing report about, well, I'm not going to name her, but it says, uh, she is up for the challenge. The subheadline is it may take decades to solve the Bay Area's housing crisis, but that won't stop this real estate development expert. And of course, the article is about how it's tough for a woman to get ahead in a man's field, but by God, she's doing it. And certainly implies without saying so that if we can just keep building more housing, we're going to solve our so-called housing crisis. We take the position on this program that this is just a fantasy. As long as you're paying people, well, what did we say on last week's program? The median of this Palo Alto firm, the median income was $170,000. If you're a programmer, you can come over here and earn that kind of big bucks paycheck. You're going to want to do it. The Bay Area has many amenities. It's a very attractive area to live. You're, you're going to want to live there. The trouble is you're going to face a lot of competition from other people like you who have lots of money to burn and want to live there too. It's going to bid up housing prices, and they're going to stay up. It's really kind of as simple as that. Supply and demand, Econ 1A. Anyway, enough of that. Anyway, talking about California real estate is almost always a downer topic for us. We can't end on a downer. Let's instead end with a chapter from The Book of Vice by Peter Sagal. A book we'll probably be quoting from from time to time in the weeks to come because it's a pretty amusing book. We have this item from his chapter on gambling. It's a joke. An old man goes to synagogue. He prays every day thusly. God, let me win the lottery. Please, just one big win. I'll give money to the poor and live a righteous life. Please. Let me win the lottery. For years he comes to the synagogue, and the same prayer goes up. Let me win the lottery, please, Lord. Won't you show me your grace and let me win? Finally, one day, after 15 years of this, as the man mutters, the lottery, Lord, let me win the lottery, a golden light suffuses the sanctuary. A chorus of angels singing a major C chord is heard. The man looks, tears in his blinded eyes, and says, Lord? A deep resonant voice rings out. Please, would you just buy a ticket already? You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.